Throughout this series, we have had the real privilege and the real honor to see some great works of art that, that correspond with the scripture verse text that we have been reading. And, and this week is no different. You see behind me, this is a true work of art by Daniel Codwell. And the significance of the symbolism is this scene is a rock high ground on a headland. And you can see um, the light radiating around and you see the power and energy that you see from the waves. The building in the middle is the Chikama Komiko. And this is a life-saving station. And there are many of these built in the mid um, to late 1800s. Right? And they were all across the coastline. And their whole purpose was to be a refuge for shipwrecked sailors, for mariners that lost their way, for mariners got, that got stuck in a storm and had no other place to go. And this place was no different. In fact, one of the rescues that took place was in 1918. This British tanker named the Merlot hit a German mine. And it caught fire, and they were in deep distress. And the men that were stationed here, they went straight out into that. And that day, they saved 42 men. 42 men whose life was forever changed, whose families were forever changed, because the men chose to build that station. And the beautiful part of not just this picture to look at, but it shows us true, substantial, what it looks like to build our foundation on a rock, on a firm foundation, because they built this life-saving station somewhere that was safe. This place still stands today and is a museum. It's lasted 200 years of storms. It's been battered over and over again, yet it still stands. But the beautiful part was that the men just didn't hunker down inside when the storm came. Right? They didn't just build their firm foundation as a refuge for themselves or, or to be safe. But the beautiful part about a firm foundation is it changes other people's lives. When you build a firm foundation in your life, then you get to live on mission. Then, and only then, do you get to change other people's lives. But it all starts with how you build your foundation. Hear now the words of Jesus in Matthew 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that in you, you call us to build our house on the rock, which is Christ. And so I pray today that you would speak to us as we open up your word. Would you show us what it means to root our life upon you and not to build our lives upon the sand and the shifting sands of this world? God, I thank you for your grace and for who you are to us. Would you speak to us now? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Well, before the service started, I heard Will practicing, chicken macomico, chicken macomico. And I thought, that's a good idea, or maybe you just go with life-saving station, because I wouldn't even try that word. That was, that was impressive. You know, before we, I just launch into the last message of this study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I, I do want to thank all of the different artists who have contributed to this. This has been really kind of cool and a unique experiment on our part. So we took Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and we divided it up into 14 different parts. And then we took the 14 different parts to a variety of local artists and just said, look, 
Can you spend some time meditating in this? Can you take this thing and then communicate by means of your art what you think it's communicating, how it makes you feel, and so forth? And so they did that for most of the weeks in this series, which was kind of cool. So week after week, we, we've been able to do that. And then the culminating work of art is, is Dan Caldwell's work of art. And, and Dan uh, and Liz are amazing people. They're actually part of our church. They live here in the neighborhood. And I see his stuff all over the place. Like I'll go to restaurants. I go to people's offices. I go to some homes. And, you know, and it's like, and it sort of gives me one of those, you know, 15 minutes or, I don't know, maybe five seconds of fame because I can go, I know them. And they're like, that's a call. Caldwell, you know Dan Caldwell? I'm like, yes. And then the fame's over, you know, but, but it's fun while it lasts. It's really, I, I enjoy it for five seconds. Uh, but as we come to the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and you just heard how he concludes it, Drew just read it to us, uh, what I want to do is before we look at that is go back to the beginning. And, and the reason I want to go back to the beginning is pretty simple, actually, because this isn't 14 sermons, it's one. Jesus didn't say, look, for the next 14 Sundays at 9 and 11 with a coffee hour in between and child care and, and lessons for your kids, I'm going to be doing 14 different messages. He said, guys, bring the kids. They can play on the hill. Bring some food. Bring a lot of water. We're going to be there a while. Have a seat. I have one sermon, one, that I'm going to give you. And it begins with the beginning. And what he says at the beginning is the key to understanding everything else he says in the sermon all the way up to the end, which eventually we will land on this morning, I promise. But what he talks about in this sermon is somebody who has a blessed life. He begins with eight blessings, eight beatitudes is what we call them. But there are eight different blessings. And here's what he's not doing with these things. He's not describing eight different kinds of people. He's not saying, okay, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's one category of blessed people. Let's put them over here, you know. And then blessed are those who mourn, a separate and distinct category. We'll put them over there. And blessed are the meek, and they go there. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and we'll put them over there. And then blessed are and blessed are. It's not what he's doing. He's describing one person, one kind of person. And what he's describing is the person who loves him. He's describing the person who knows him. He's describing the person for whom the Spirit of God has entered into their heart and opened their eyes and opened their ears and, and softened them to him and given him, given them the very faith by which they've embraced him. And then beyond that, he's describing that person who then takes up the habits and practices of walking with Jesus. The things that we talk about here all the time, like personal worship and corporate worship and life and community and finding how God can use you to change the world that you live in, your little world, for him. And those habits and practices are what the Spirit of the Lord, who takes up his residence within you when you come to faith in Jesus and uses to mold you and to shape you and to make you more and more like Jesus, or even to look at it maybe a little bit differently within the context of the sermon, more and more capable of little by little, bit by bit, piece by piece, over time, living out to the sermon that Jesus then lays out after the eight blessings. And then landing with a life that, well, in the end, you discover because you've built it by faith on the teachings of Jesus, can weather the storms of life. And look, that's a blessing, is it not? Because, because the storms come. So as we come to the end, I want to revisit the beginning. Jesus said this at the beginning of his sermon. He says in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 1, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up onto the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, and here it is, blessed, first of all, are the poor in spirit. And now remember what he tags on to this. 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Look, when we get to the eighth one of these, you're going to hear that again because he's describing one person, not eight. And when Jesus comes to us and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, I mean, it's pretty evident that he's not talking about financial bankruptcy. What might not be evident is that what he is talking about is spiritual bankruptcy. So he's coming to me and he's coming to you and he's saying, this might sound a little crazy, but blessed are you if you understand that you have accumulated a debt with God through the way that you've lived that you cannot possibly pay and therefore, spiritually speaking, are bankrupt. Which is if you just look at me and at you and at life and the world and God and all of this stuff through the lens of the Bible, you realize is inescapably true. I mean, it, it must be the case. Because if, in fact, the God of the universe does exist, and if, in fact, that same God has created everything and everyone for the most dignified possible purpose ever, which is to live for the greatest cause, the greatest being, the greatest person ever, which is God himself, it's a beautiful calling. And to do it perfectly because he's so great that that's what he deserves. Okay, well, then we're all spiritually bankrupt, aren't we? Because none of us have done it perfectly. We just, we haven't. I mean, the reality is, if I miss even a minute of perfect worship and service and devotion to God, I am spiritually bankrupt. And I can't go to you for help because you're spiritually bankrupt too. Why? Because we can't go to God and say, hey, listen, I just missed a minute today. So it's a banner day. (laughs) One minute, but don't worry about it. I'll make it up tomorrow. Well, you can't make it up tomorrow. Why? Because you already owe him every minute of tomorrow and every minute of the next day and every minute of the next day and every minute of the next day. Don't come to me looking for minutes. Don't look to your parents for minutes. Don't look to your really godly friends for minutes. They don't have them either. And Jesus says, believe it or not, as traumatic as that realization might be for the moment, comfort's coming. It's good. He's like, look, everybody is in that position. Everyone, everywhere. Blessed are you if you realize it. If the Spirit of the Lord reveals it to you. And then engenders in you a heart that mourns over it. And not mourns over it because of the consequences to you for the ways that, you know, you've failed. And we've all done that, have we not? I'm not talking about that deal where, like, you disobey your parents and they ground you. And as a result of being grounded, you mourn. And you drive down Federal and you're speeding and you're going north. And that police officer on the motorcycle, have you seen him? He, he parks right by the entrance to Holiday Park and he kind of pokes out around the corner of the gymnastics building right there, you know, and then if he nails you, then he just kind of steps out and goes, you, and then you pull over. And I, don't ask me how I know that. Um, <laughs> somebody told me. Um, you know, and then you get a ticket and then you mourn, you know, or something more significant. You're looking at porn, your wife catches you again. And now there's a big, big, big problem. And now you mourn. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about mourning, not over the cost to you or even over the cost to people that you love. That's significant. (laughs) That's worthy of mourning, I'm sure. But I'm talking about mourning over the cost to God. Because if you work that system through for a minute, here's where you're inescapably led. You're led to him. You have to be because you can't come to me for minutes. You can't go to your parents. You can't go to your friends. You can't live two minutes at a time, so you can't make up any minutes. You're undone, and no one can help you but him. And so it leaves you with no escape. Like, you have to go to the God to whom you owe the debt that you've accumulated, 
and ask him to do what only he can do, which is to forgive the debt. But if somebody forgives a debt, there's a cost to that, is there not? Like when somebody owes you money and you say, you know what, don't worry about it. Who just ate the cost? You did. That's Jesus. Reflect for a second on how great the love of God is for you. Because even though all of us owe him decades, okay, not minutes, he so loved and desired a relationship with you that God became man. It's what we celebrate next month. It's the supernatural conception by which the the eternal God of the universe and the person of Jesus Christ enters into this world as one of us because he had to be one of us so that as one of us, he can do for us what none of us have done, live that good good as God life, you know, perfect worship, perfect service, perfect devotion, every minute, every day, every year, like perfect. And then He can come to me and you and say, look, I'm going to make you an offer. Okay, so here's the offer. You owe God a debt you cannot possibly pay. Have your eyes been opened to that? I'll take your debt. I'm not just a man. I am the God man. So I'm of infinite value. My life, infinitely valuable. I can cover your debt and your debt and your debt and those people's debt and the millions of people over there's debt and the hundred million people over here's debt and the billion people over... I got you. I can do this. That's the cross. And you know what that brings? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It brings comfort, man. It brings relief like it brings joy. You're like, good grief. Everything is set right with God. And I had to do, well, nothing because I couldn't. You're saying Jesus did that all for me and then he just gives me that? That's exactly what I'm saying. And it's necessarily the case. There's no other way that it would have or could have worked. And it's not just comfort now. It's not just comfort in this life. It's comfort even in the face of death, guys. For Jesus didn't just live and suffer and die and was buried and then that's it. But he breaks the observable pattern of life. And that is it, isn't it? Life, death, burial, and then that's it. That's what we see. But Jesus, being God made man, did what he promised to do. And he came forth from the grave. And he promised eternal life to us. In other words, he said, Look, the grave is not your end, it will give way to life again. It's a remarkable comfort. And here's what those realizations make you they make you meek. Verse 5 Blessed are the meek. It's just a chain, all the links linked together. For they shall inherit the earth. And meekness isn't weakness, it's humility. It's recognizing who in fact you are and are not in the presence of God. It's realizing you're far worse than you ever thought you were, but far more loved than you ever thought you were. It's embracing that love, it's receiving that comfort, it's being filled with his spirit. And being able, therefore, in your humility to be selfless, like to learn how to be something that none of us are natively. Like natively, we're all about ourselves. And even when we're selfless, we're about ourselves. Aren't we? We are. How do you take someone and place them above yourself and prefer them more than you? You don't unless you're humbled by the gospel unless you're transformed by what God has done for you. But Jesus didn't just suffer and die to pay the debt for all of our sin. 
He lived so that he might give us his righteousness, which is significant too, because when you come into the presence of God, if you're forgiven, that's awesome. Welcome. Come on in. But you bring what? Nothing. You have to bring something, don't you? I mean, you bring nothing. You're like, no, I do good things. I've got to be able to bring something. Well, I just kind of covered that a second ago. I mean, I occasionally do good things too, but it's a relative term. And the reality is that no matter what it is that we do that is good, we do in part for ourselves, even when we can't see that in ourselves. So we give something to someone which is itself good and incredibly helpful to that person. But we give that something to someone at least a little bit motivated by the fact that it makes me feel better about myself or it makes me feel better about what I keep for myself or it makes me feel really good because I was hoping somebody would notice and they did. Jesus has us covered there too. He lives the perfect life. He accumulates infinite righteousness. It's it's remarkable. He gives his life to pay the penalty for our sin. It's like, I'll take the debt. I got that covered. Here's what I'm going to give to you. I'm going to give to you what you're longing for when you come into the presence of God. I'm going to give to you my righteousness. Do you know why you enjoy the favor of God as a Christian? It's not because you live this way or do this or say this or don't do that or don't say this. Or It's because Jesus is bought and paid for and he's given it to you as a gift. You know why? I want to know why, as we talked about earlier in the service, God rejoices over you with singing. It's not because I in and of myself, okay, warrant that. It's because Christ warrants that. And God so loved me He so made me the object of his love that he gave Christ that I might be forgiven and then given positively the righteousness of Jesus worthy of song, the blessings of the Lord, the presence of the Lord, gifts, gifts from the hand of the one who gives it to you. He says, blessed also are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That is to say, they don't just want it. They wouldn't just kind of like to have it. They hunger and thirst for it like like you do for food and water, without which you will die. Why are they blessed? For they shall be satisfied. The idea being by the righteousness of Jesus, and they shall also be made merciful. Blessed are the merciful, he says next. For they shall receive mercy. And frankly, it's the reception of God's mercy that makes us merciful. It's like, my goodness, God has been so good to me. How could I not be good to you? God has been so understanding of me. How can I not be understanding of you? God has been so merciful toward me. How can I not be merciful toward you? God has promised to meet all of my needs. I have none. And he owns it all. How can I not be generous toward you? He continues. And he says, blessed are the pure in heart, which is a purity that's found through faith in Christ. For they shall see God. Everybody else, no. But you have the confidence of a child running into the presence of a father who loves you. And in his presence, there's no concern. For your heart has been made pure by Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers. Those who through Jesus have made peace with God. Why? For they shall be called sons of God. What does that mean? Well, sons look like their fathers, don't they? And in this case, not physically, but in terms of the way that you behave, in terms of the way you interact with the world, you become a peacemaker. And not just between people, but between people and God through the gospel is the idea. And then finally, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, because if you live for Jesus, you'll experience some of the persecutions that he experienced. And yet blessed are they, for theirs 
Here it is, is the kingdom of heaven. It's the same promise he attached to the first one because he's not describing eight people. He's describing one kind of person, and that's who and what he's calling you to be. That's the idea. Come and know Jesus. Come and receive the forgiveness of Jesus. Come and be gifted the righteousness of Jesus and all of the gifts that come along with that. Come and be filled with the spirit of Jesus and then engage in the habits and practices of one who relates to Jesus so that he might form you after the fashion of Jesus so that your heart will become like his heart, which means, and then you just walk through the rest of the sermon, that you will progressively become a person who's able to deal with his anger in here and out here, which is a blessing, incidentally, not just to others, but to you. He's able to deal with his lust in here and out here blessing, who is honest and not vengeful, able to forgive his enemies and generous to the poor, blessing, 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 and then blessing, who fasts and prays not to be seen by other people because he's trying to, you know, impress somebody and maybe, wow, you know, you're really spiritual. And No, whose private piety, however, is rewarded by God himself, whose treasure is in heaven, who lives at peace, who doesn't judge people unrighteously, who does unto others what he would have them do unto him. Blessing, blessing, blessing. Bless life. Those are the things he's talked to us about as we've moved through. And then as we get to the end, what you discover is that that person with faith in Christ, filled with the spirit of Jesus, authentically pursuing Christ, imperfectly, guys. I mean, you know, sometimes it's one step forward and two steps back. I understand, but progressively forward. That person finds when the storms of life come, and that's when it's revealed, isn't it? That person discovers that their life, that by faith, has been built on the teachings of Jesus as opposed to anything else can withstand the storms of life. So we get to the end of the sermon, and Jesus talks to us about two houses, and the two houses represent two different lives. You get that, right? And both of the houses are nice, and both of the houses are new, and both of the houses list on the MLS for roughly the same amount of money. But the houses are built on different foundations. And so the owner of house number one knows Jesus and loves Jesus and, albeit imperfectly, follows Jesus and pursues Jesus and is being shaped and formed by Jesus and is building his life upon the rock that is Christ, and that is his teaching, and the owner of house number two does not do that. Now, he might admire the teachings of Jesus, he might praise the teachings of Jesus, he might hear a lot about the teachings of Jesus, but he doesn't do them. That's the faith difference. And so when exactly the same storm hits both houses, one stands and the other implodes. Jesus ends his sermon. I'll read it again with this in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 24. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them by faith. I'm so moved by you, Jesus. I'm going to do what you say because I want to, (laughs) because I love you. All right, well, everyone who does that will be like a wise man who built his house, his life on the rock, and the rain fell. And the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew 
and beat against that house. And it fell. And great was the fall of it. Which brings us back to Dan's painting. And I, I think the part of the imagery of Dan's painting, and there's a lot of imagery in there, It's been amazing to see how each different artist sort of looks at these things and why they put what they put in the in the art that they've created. But um, but I love the house in the foreground, you know, the life saving station with the name that I'm not going to try to say again. It's awesome, and I love it for the reason that Will talked about. When you build a life that is firm on the foundation of the rock that is the teachings of Christ, that that is the relationship that you share with Him expressed by a loving obedience to what he tells you to do. It's not just life-giving to you. It's life-giving to others. It's a life-saving station from which these people would go out and save others. Others who have shipwrecked in that case. It's pretty cool. So with all that in mind, as we enter into our time of reflection, I'm going to give you a couple of questions that I want you to meditate on, and then we'll pray through it together, okay? And I'll give you some space in the prayers, so that's the, the quiet moments, so that you can talk to God, not just me on your behalf, but, but you directly. Uh, but I just want to ask you, first of all, have you recognized your spiritual poverty? Because we're all in spiritually impoverished. Like, every one of us is bankrupt. Some of us realize it. Jesus says, if you realize it, blessed are you. You're blessed to realize it. Have you mourned over your sin, not just over the consequences for you and others? There's something there, but but really over what it cost God because it cost God Jesus and yet he loved you so much that he gave Jesus. Have you been comforted by the forgiveness and the future that is yours through faith in Jesus and hungered and thirsted for a righteousness that he gifts to you and satisfies you with? These are all of the offerings of Christ. Fourthly, what foundation have you built your life upon? Because the storms come for everybody. And then lastly, who are you offering the safety of Jesus to? Let's just pray through that together, okay?